Sarah. Uh, just two, two things very quickly. Um, you, uh, you may want a handout for the sermon. It looks a little bit like this. I'll get it. Uh, so it looks a bit like that. Uh, if you want a handout so you can write notes, just put your hand up. Kate will, um, Kate will pass them out. And as, as she's doing that, one of the things that we love to do here at MCC is give away great books. And this is a classic book by a guy named J.I. Packer. It's called Knowing God. Who's actually read this book? A fair few of you guys have read it. This is a phenomenal book that if you want to know God better, um, other than the Bible, this is probably one of the best books that you can read. This is free, so if you want to grab it, if you've got a bunch of free time, or even if you don't watch, uh, have a bunch of free time, don't watch whatever you're watching on TV. Read the book instead. Uh, no, if it's basketball, well, maybe. Uh, you know, so um, thanks, Howran. So I'm just going to put it down on that. Anyone can grab that. I'm going to pray as we jump into God's Word. Let's pray. Father God, I pray this morning as we look at your word, as, as we see what Jesus has done for us, I pray that you would, you would give us a great sense that our sin has been dealt with. You give us a great sense of, of what you have done for us and we would walk away from here filled with joy and praise for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, it was actually before COVID, I was talking to a man who came to this church for just a few weeks, uh, maybe a few months actually, and uh, he had uh, gone away on holidays and he hadn't come back and I caught up with him. And as we were chatting, I was asking him, what, you, what, what is it keeping you away from church? I said, did someone offend you? He goes, no, everyone was lovely here. And I asked, is, you know, didn't you like the preaching? And he said, well, it's a bit long sometimes, but no, no, it's not that, right? And I said, what about the music? He said, no, no, no. He said, everything about the church is fine. And I said, oh, okay, so what's keeping you away? And he goes, hands, I've done so many stupid things. So many stupid things. And he said, I feel so guilty for them. And when I come to church, I'm just overcome with guilt because I just remember all these things. And he didn't go into detail about what those things were. But it was very interesting that he is slowly walking away from church and Jesus, because this overburdening sense of guilt that he's got. When I meet with a lot of people, who have had a religious experience, but they're away from church. Maybe they're checking out Jesus. So many of them, when you, when, when you really get down to it, when I say, hey, why don't you come to know Jesus? It's guilt. I don't know how many conversations with people I had while I was in Newtown, while I was a pastor in Newtown, uh, about, hey, coming to know Jesus. And, and the point was that they would say, no, 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 because God would never love someone like me because I've done this or that or this or that. I dare say when I talk about guilt or when anyone talks about guilt, so, so many of us here, in fact, probably most of us, have got that one thing or that two things or those three things that our mind goes back to all the time. That you've got that thing, that thing that you did, those words that you said, that relationship that you had a part in breaking down. And you've got this overwhelming sense of guilt. And it just seems to come up and up and up. 
And can I ask you today, what are you doing with that guilt? What are you going to deal, what are you going to do to deal with it? As I was kind of looking at this sermon, I was, I was thinking about this, this idea of guilt, and I kind of Googled a bunch of things about how to deal with guilt. And, and, and honestly, the way our world deals with guilt actually doesn't deal with guilt at all. I found a lady on a social media platform called Val Jones. Val Jones is a life coach. I don't know how you get to be a life coach, but she is one. And she puts out all these videos about how to make your life better, how to have a better life. And she's got one on guilt. And she says the way you deal with guilt is by sitting down and journaling and answering six questions. Here are these six questions. Have a listen to them. What happened to cause the guilty feeling? What do I feel guilty about? Did I really do something bad? Is someone else making me feel guilty? What is underneath the guilt? And what is actually true? Now, can I just say what I did? I thought, okay, I'm going to take Val Jones up on her offer. I'm going to think about something that I feel guilty about, and I'm going to go through those things. And I went answering those questions. Number one, what happened to cause the guilty feeling? I thought about it. Okay, that's what happened. What do I feel guilty about? Well, I did the wrong thing. I hurt people. Number three, did I, do, did I really do something bad? Yeah, actually, I did. Four, is someone else making me feel guilty? No, I'm making myself feel guilty because I did the wrong thing and hurt people. What is underneath the guilt? Well, underneath the guilt is the, is the feeling that I've done something wrong and I've hurt people. And finally, what is actually true? Well, what's actually true is I've done something wrong and I've hurt people. And I came to the end of it and I was like, well, well I, I feel actually worse now. Thank you, Val Jones. I'm not going to you as a life coach. So, see, our world, there is so much guilt in our world and it's actually multiplying. There's a quote on your outline from a guy named Douglas Murray. And he's looked at our world and he says this about guilt. Today we do seem to live in a world where actions can have consequences we could never have imagined. Where guilt and shame are more at hand than ever and where we have no means whatsoever of redemption. We do not know who could offer it, who could accept it, and whether it is a desirable quality compared to an endless cycle of fiery, cer- uh, fiery certainty and denunciation. What is he saying? He's saying we live in a world where there's so much guilt, well, where you can put something on social media and the world can say that is wrong. And what do you feel? There's so much guilt and shame. And yet we've got nowhere or no place to go with it. Fr- Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, uh, the great philosopher, talked about the death of God. And one of the things he said is he thinks, you know, there should have been a death of God. But then on the other hand, he said the problem will be when God is has been dead from our conscience, we will still have guilt and shame and we won't know what to do about it. I dare say there are so many people here who are feeling guilty and feeling ashamed and we don't know what to do about it. 
And the good news today is that Isaiah is answering this question. In fact, Isaiah is answering the question, how can a gracious God keep his promises to a truly guilty people? You, you, you see, Isaiah is writing from, from a point, he's writing 200 years before, before the audience he's writing to. And he's writing to a bunch of people who are in exile because of their sin. They, they have totally blown their relationship with God, and yet he is going to say, here is the solution to your guilt. Here is the solution to your shame. God's answer to our sin, our guilt, and shame is this suffering servant. And as we see him today, we'll find the answer to our guilt, and we'll find so much more. We're going to see three things as we look at this passage. We're going to see the servant's suffering, the servant's significance, and the servant's success. The servant's suffering, the servant's significance, and the servant's success. Well, well, let's have a look at the servant's suffering. Let's have a look at uh, Isaiah 52, verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be lifted up. Sorry, he will raise, lifted up, and highly exalted. Here is this servant. And what is he going to do? He is going to act wisely. That is, he's going to act in a way that is right, that is going to bring about success. And he is going to be raised up, lifted up, and exalted. Well, what's really significant about there is that you've got to go, he'll be raised up, lifted, and exalted at the end, but he's going to go through some dark, dark times. And yet, let's have a look at who he is or what has happened. Verse 14. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. It gives this picture of you would see this servant and you would be asking the question, because of his disfigurement, is is he actually human? What What has happened here? It reminds you of Jesus was beaten to within an inch of his life before going to the cross. And yet, what will he do? Verse 15, so he will sprinkle many nations. That word for sprinkle gives this picture of the priests in the Old Testament, that when lepers would come in and they would declare themselves to be clean, the priest would sprinkle them with blood or water to say you are clean. Or the sprinkling that happened when, when on the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, they would take some blood of the land that was slain for the sin of Israel and they would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Here, this suffering servant is sprinkling the nations. He is cleansing them. He is forgiving them. He is dealing with their sin. The one who is unclean, will be the one who turns out to be cleansing the world. And yet people will shut their mouths because of him. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they were not told they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. One day, everyone will see Jesus for who he is. And the kings of the world who rejected him will say nothing because of the very fact that they've rejected him. 
Let's go on to verse 50, uh, 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is a picture of his power. His power and his might to save. This is the arm of the Lord that saved Israel from Egypt in the book of Exodus, that sent Israel into the promised land and defeated the Canaanites. This is the arm of the Lord, him in power. And yet, as we're going to see, the arm of the Lord doesn't look very powerful. The arm of the Lord actually looks like a, a suffering servant. It looks like weakness to us. But here, as we see Jesus, it may look like weak, but here is the power of God because he is saving people. And that is what he's doing. And yet we see unbelief here. And there's unbelief here for three reasons. Have a look in verse 2. First of all, how he looks. Verse 2, he grew up before him like a tender shoot. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. When, if you were go, able to go back 2,000 years ago and see Jesus, you wouldn't look at him and go, wow, that's amazing. In fact, if, the, if him and the 12 disciples lined up, you wouldn't be able to even pick Jesus out. There was nothing about him. And so there's unbelief. But there's also, he's got no beauty or attractiveness. Once again in verse 2. He didn't look like a GQ man of the year or anything. There was nothing about him. And finally, in verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Isaiah is asking, who has believed our message? The answer is, well, definitely not the kings because one day they are going to have their mouths closed. They, re they reject him or they don't believe. Why? Because there's nothing about Jesus that is significant. In fact, he's a man of suffering and pain. And it also shows here the human condition. To see no beauty in Jesus shows the bankruptcy of our hearts and our eyes. To, to reject him shows the bankruptcy of the human will. To conclude that he is nothing shows the bankruptcy of our values. And so when Isaiah asks who has believed our, our message, well, what, he, what he's really getting at is, on human standards, we will reject Jesus. And so we need divine revelation. We need the God of, of the universe to reveal who he is to us. Here is a man with so much suffering. So much suffering. One of the great things about the God of the Bible is this. That he came to earth and he suffered like you and me. And that's really significant because I don't know if you've ever talked to someone who you're sharing about your pain and your suffering and they just don't get it. I remember this happened to me, in fact, you know, it happened to me, it has happened to me in pastoral situations where someone has been sharing and I haven't been able to get it. When I was a pastor in Newtown, we had a lot of people with depression and, and they would share about their experiences of depression and I would go, yeah, it's really, really hard, real, yeah, but I couldn't really connect. And they would, they would sense this, they would sense that I'm doing the best job that I can, but there was something missing. 
In fact, there was one time, I don't recommend this, this is pretty dumb, but, but I was like, oh, you know, when someone said, you don't know what it's like to be depressed, Hans, I was like, yeah. And I was like, well, how do I, what, what does depression look like? And they talked about their last few weeks and they talked about how they weren't sleeping and, and all this kind of stuff and, and everything was dark. So I actually, you know, stayed up one night. I kept the, the lights on. It was really dark and kind of moody and stuff. And I was like, literally, I was like, I'm going to, try to be depressed but then I, then the next day I had a nap I had a shower and I had a chocolate bar and I felt fantastic and it just didn't work right and, and I just couldn't connect and then last year I went through severe depression where there was mornings I couldn't get out I just didn't want to get out of bed I remember going on the train and for no reason just being in tears and everyone's just looking at this big six-foot-four guy just crying in the middle of the train, right? Felt so stupid and felt so depressed. And, and now I get it. I, I get it. The beauty, the beauty of the God of the Bible is this, that he has come down and he has suffered like us. And so he gets your suffering. It's not like, like God is looking at you and going, I mean, I just got no idea. No, he, he gets it. He gets it. See, some of you guys have been totally abandoned by the people who were, who were meant to be there loving you. And the night before Jesus was, was hung on a cross, all his friends abandoned him. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. So some of you guys are going, well, well all hands, uh, I've been so humiliated and ashamed. Jesus was nailed to a cross naked. He was spat on. He knows what it's like to be humiliated and ashamed. Some of you guys are going, well, well hands, I've been abused. And can I just say, maybe Jesus, uh, I dare say Jesus hasn't gone through abuse like you, but he was beaten. He was spat upon, hurled insults. Uh, Jesus may not be, have been abused like you, but he knows what, it's, what it is to suffer abuse. Some of you guys are going, hands, I have, I've cried out to God on so many occasions and God has done nothing. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God, his heavenly Father, was silent. Jesus knows what it's like to cry out and get silence in return. The God of the Bible knows what it's like to walk the paths that you have walked and you are walking now. And so it is very, very significant to, for us to remember that when we are hurting, that the hands which hold you as you hurt the hands which hold you as you cry, the hands which hold you in comfort have been pierced with nails. God has suffered, so he knows what it is like for you to suffer. And therefore you can cry out to him and he will get you and he will understand. This is the suffering servant. But let's have a look at the servant's significant. Have a look at verse 4 with me. 
Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. Now, notice the... the, the the, the thing in verse 4 is that he's done this willingly. Surely he took up our pain. It, it wasn't like it was thrust upon him. No, he took up our pain. He did this willingly. But, but, but notice all that, that who, who we're like. Verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I don't know if you've ever dealt with sheep. I really haven't much. But I can remember talking to a bunch of drovers. My dad and I used to go out and ride motorbikes when I was a kid. And uh, we would go on uh, stock trails. And I can remember uh, there was a number of times when there was a bunch of uh, sheep there grazing and there was drovers. And, and uh, sometimes we would have a chat with them. And I can remember one time um, uh, my dad asked one of them, how's everything going? And they said, oh, pretty bad because yesterday we lost 80 sheep. And, and I was like, well, what happened? And, and he said... One, one boy threw a rock at a tree and there was a bit of a crack. And then all these sheep just ran across the road and there was a semi-trailer coming that couldn't stop. And what Isaiah is saying here is that we are all like sheep. We just go really dumb ways without really thinking. But, but do you also see how it's willful? Verse 6 again, each of us has turned to our own way. That is, forget about our excuses. A choice was presented to us and we chose the path of deliberate, conscious, willful rebellion. We sinned because we wanted to. Or we didn't do the right thing because we didn't want to. I mean, just think about your life for a second. When you look at that thing that caused so much guilt and shame, how much was it because you wanted to? Yes, you were going through a hard time. Yes, there was all these extenuating circumstances. I get it. But you made that choice. Or think about the relationships maybe that you had a, you had a part in destroying. And you know that if you went and... and apologized, you, something good would, would come of that. And yet you don't want to, you are choosing to keep that relationship fractured. And yes, you might, you've got all the excuses in the world, but you're doing it because you choose to. That's us. But in verses 5 and 6, or sorry, 4 to 6, the, the, the pronouns are key. Have a, have a read of it again, and I, I will emphasize that. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that was brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. What do we get? Or what do we do? Well, it's our transgressions, our iniquities. What does he get? He gets piercing and being crushed. We got peace. He got punishment. We got healing. He got wounds. 
And in verse 7, have a read of it with me. It says this, he was uh, oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. Notice how he goes willingly to the slaughter. It's not that he didn't know what was happening. No, we saw in verse 4 that he took up our pain. This is something that he is going to do because he's chosen it. But just like a lamb going to the slaughter, he was silent before Pilate. He said basically nothing. He didn't defend himself. And yet what is the end for him? Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? There's so many when Jesus was on trial that said, crucify him, crucify him. No one got up and said, actually, this is wrong. This is wrong. For he was cut off of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done, done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. It's kind of weird that he, he's assigned to the, a grave to the wicked and the rich. But in a lot of the prophets, the wicked people, because of their wickedness, become rich. And so Isaiah is saying, that is his end. But did you see? But he's done no violence. He's totally innocent. He has died for us in our place. This is what Jesus has done for you on the cross. I remember reading a story when I was a teenager of two brothers. They, they had grown up together in a, in a, like a well-to-do uh, middle-class home in America. And one, the older brother, was this really significant uh, kind of athlete and student at school. He, he got straight A's and everything. He went to Yale and he went into law. And the other one never lived up to the standards of his brother and just went down a different road of rebellion and crime. And it was 20 years before they got to see each other because the relationship had broken down that much. The older brother became a judge. And one day in his horror, he looked up and he saw his brother right there. And the story was that his brother was, was, was not a good criminal. Like, there's no good criminals, but he wasn't a, 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 a kind of a wise criminal, if you want to say, right? And he had he'd been found with a quarter of a million dollars of crack cocaine under his bed, which I thought would be the wrong place to store crack cocaine, but that's where, where it was, right? And it was, it was, it was just clear the jury, within 20 minutes, said that this guy was guilty. And it was either going to be 10 years in jail for this, for this brother, the younger brother, or someone was going to have to pay a million dollars. And so the gavel came down. The older brother said, this man is guilty. He's got to either go to jail for 10 years or pay a million dollars. And then the judge, the older brother, took off all his judge attire he got out his checkbook. He stood next to his younger brother. He wrote the check out for a million dollars and he said, my brother is guilty, but I'm paying the price. On the cross, when Jesus died for you, he paid a check. He wrote a check in his blood where he said, you are guilty, but I am paying the price. 
so you go guilt-free. But I dare say some of us here, when, when we hear that, we say, why couldn't, why did Jesus need to die? Why couldn't God just forgive? I mean, God calls us to forgive, so why couldn't just God just click his fingers and forgive? And can I just say this? If you think that, and many people do, have you considered how hard it is to truly forgive somebody? When you've been really hurt, really hurt, and someone just comes up to you and goes, oh, just forgive? It was interesting as I was researching this idea of guilt, and there were so many people, so many videos who were saying, well, well, what you've got to do is just forgive yourself. And I was like, as if it's that easy. Just forgive yourself. The word just implies that it's very easy. And then when people say, oh, you should just forgive that person, the just implies that it's very easy. But if you've been really hurt, you know how hard it is to forgive. And when there's been a world of people that God has created in open mockery and rebellion against him, God can't just forgive. But what God does is deal with it. He comes down in the person of Jesus. He allows himself to be vulnerable and he dies in our place on the cross. Jesus is dealing with the scandal and the pain of forgiveness. That's why you can be forgiven and that's why the cross is needed. On the cross, Jesus did everything that you, that you needed to be forgiven. Because Jesus got the tree of death, you can have the tree of life. Because Jesus got rejected by the Father, you can be welcomed by the Father. Because Jesus got the wrath of God, you can have the grace of God. Because Jesus got a cross, one day you will have a crown. Isn't it amazing what Jesus has done? So so here's what I want you to do. I want you to walk away today far more aware of the fact that God has forgiven you than the sin that you need forgiving for. It will be the wrong thing to walk away from today more aware of your sin than the forgiveness and love that Jesus has shown you on the cross. So, So... I pray today that you can leave that sin behind, that you can leave that guilt behind and walk away totally free with this this weight just lifted because of that sin was on Jesus. And what I want you to do is wake up every day and think about what Jesus has done for you and and be reminded that, yes, you may be flawed and sinful than you'd ever dare to believe but you are loved and forgiven more than you can ever dare hope. That is your reality. And if you remind yourself of that every single day, what will happen? You will have joy. You will have peace because of what Jesus has done for you. The significance of the servant is that he died to save you. But finally, let's have a look at the servant's success. Have a look at verse 10 with me. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. 
And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. It talks about Jesus being crushed and dying, but then it says, hey, the offspring, you know, he will see his offspring. You go, well, Jesus didn't have any kids. What does that mean? I think that's just a metaphor for basically saying, after he has been crushed, he will have life again. Verse 11, after he had suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide spoils, the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life under death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many. And made intercession for the transgressors. The transgressors. Did you see what Jesus, as he looks back on what he has done, as he looks back on, on his torture and his death on the cross, what he feels? Well, in verse 11, it says, He will see the light of life and be satisfied. The, the idea here is that. He will feel joy, actually. The, the word in the original can, can speak of delight. So Jesus looks back on his death for you. And he doesn't regret it, no matter what you're doing now. He, he doesn't think, oh man, they've done it again. I can't believe this person's a loser. I can't believe I died for this person. That was a stupid thing to do. No, 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 no. He has delight because as he died on the cross for you, he took all your sin, past, present, and future. As it was accomplished, he realized, he knew that it was finished. And he's got, he had great delight. See, it's kind of like this. Kind of like this. I can remember um, when our first uh, child, Emma, was born. Uh, the labor was 53 hours long. 53 hours. I was so tired at the end of it. And, but, but, you know, there, there was there and there was sweating and there was screaming and there was just pain and that kind of thing. And then if you saw Kate, she was experiencing the same thing. And, uh, and I, could, I could just remember... When finally Emma arrived and she was put on Kate's chest, just the joy that she had, the delight that Kate had. And so I dare say, I should have cleared this with Kate, but as Kate looks back on that moment, yes, she can remember the pain, but she can remember meeting Emma for the first time. And she can remember start of that beautiful relationship. When Jesus looks back on his saving of you, he, yes, he sees the pain, but he sees the forgiveness that was won for you. He sees the relationship that is now being made to happen because of what he's done. And therefore, he delights in it. He's got joy because of it. And finally, God exalts him 
Philippians 2 says he's exalted to the highest place and every knee will bow before him. And so what are we meant to do with this? I think we should just be in awe. I think we should just be in awe. That, that this is what God has done for you and for me. And so the application is not to do more, but just to be in awe of this. That this is what God has done for you. And to wake up every single day with a sole focus of, of worshipping and serving him. Because when we, when we see that in the story of Jesus, we see the story of the love of God for you. When we see that, we see Jesus doing what we could not do out for ourselves. And the overwhelming response to that is a life filled with joyous, thankful praise. Is your life filled with joyous, thankful praise because of what Jesus has done for you? Well, we're going to have an opportunity to joyously, thankfully praise God in song. And I'm going to ask you guys, um, the the musicians, to, to come up as I'm praying. I'd invite you guys to stand as I finish this sermon by praying. And then we're going to see Jesus... Oh, we're going to praise Jesus for what he's done in song. So let's stand. Oh, Lord Jesus, you who created the world and created us, loved us so much that that you died for us. We have been cleansed from our sin. The wrath of God has been completely satisfied. Oh, Father God, we, we want to live lives of joyous praise for you because of what you have done. And so, Lord, I pray that we would do this. I pray for those here today that have got feelings or senses of guilt and shame. May they be able to be reminded of what Jesus has done and walk away from today being so blown away by what Jesus has done. Lord, for those of us who are, who are burned because we are walking through very hard times now. Help us to be encouraged that the hands that are holding us as we weep were pierced with nails. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you have done for us. Amen. Amen.